Have you ever looked back on a day and the list of things you didn't do is longer than the list of things you did? There's this invisible scale of enoughness that they use to measure themselves that they can never meet it. The standards are unrealistic. They're absolutely unattainable. So all that's left is a shame spiral. Today on Feed, Play, Love, we're talking about radical self-acceptance, why that list is not as important as you think it is, and kicking the not enough rhetoric to the curb. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. The other day, I sat down and wrote myself out a list. I needed to get real about my self-talk. So I decided to write out every area where I felt I was not enough. This list was fairly extensive and covered both my role as mother, wife and work colleague. Now, objectively, I know I'm a reasonably decent person who's not a slacker. But if you look at that list, the list that's constantly looping in my mind you would think I was a pretty lazy sod. Dr. Rebecca Ray is a psychologist and author. Her latest book is called Small Habits for a Big Life. Hi, Beck. How are you? Hi, Chef. Thanks for having me. I'm super concerned about this list. <laughs> so am I once <laughs> I went back and read <laughs> it. my frowning. <laughs> <laughs> I, looked at, I actually, it's such an interesting experience because, um, you know, I do this all the time and I hate when this not enough idea comes about for mums in particular. Yeah. And so often I hear these things all the time that I think it doesn't relate to me Mm. because it's just something I talk about and I think people, you know, I don't want you to feel like that. And then I was thinking, hold on a minute, look at what you're saying to yourself. Mm. And that's why I decided to write the list. And it was, it was very cathartic Mm. because I got to the end of it, you know, and on the list were things like, don't spend enough time doing readers with my son, (laughs) which is hundred percent true. Don't walk the dog enough don't do enough around the house, all of this stuff that just feeds into this idea of not enough. Mm. And because we talk about it all the time, I know it's not just me. And it feels like it's mums that have this kind of pattern. How do you, does that resonate with you? You're both a mum and a psychologist. Do you see that in women? Um, At a person. (laughs) Yeah, it does. I would say that the reason we see it so often in mums is because the mental load of lifing is often largely on mums. And so we're not just expected to do a job outside the home, but we're also expected to organise school things. We're also expected to know when the dentist appointment is, whether or not swimming um, clothes are in the bag, ready to go, and whether or not that permission slip has been signed. Um, That all falls to us. And so one of the things that happens, I think, socially is that's not counted. Mm. So there is this scale that we apply to success in Western society that includes 2.4 children and driving the right kind of car. Maybe it's like an SUV in the driveway of your four plus two house in the burbs um, and you're making this certain income and you've got some kind of status at work and you've made it because you're married to some hot guy and um, a hope for you. <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's the success. But then you're at home going, well, if I was truly successful, then I would have walked the dog six days last week and 
not three. And I would have done readers every single day, but I'm constantly missing the mark. And have you not noticed that the dishwasher hasn't been unpacked for six days? Um, (laughs) So what happens is when we don't count everything we do, we look externally at what everybody else is doing and we make some assumptions about that, that everyone else is nailing it privately, but we're not. Mm. And what that means about us is that we no longer count in terms of having some level of value in society. Because what enoughness is about, what worthiness is about, is it's about belonging. And in in order to belong to our people at large, what society tells us we must do is to be successful. And if we're rating ourselves as unsuccessful, as not good enough, what that attacks internally, psychologically, is our sense of being part of someone, something, some broader culture that values us for just existing. Not to get on my feminist soapbox. Mm -hmm. Do it. (laughs) Just get on it. When I look at the things I feel I'm not good enough at, um, I don't I don't prescribe it to like the the broader social context, but I feel like I'm somehow not what I should be as a wife, a mother to the people who rely on me. And if I have some perspective from that, I always think, well, that's because women as mothers are meant to be the holders of everything, that emotional load that you talked about. And I've written about this on my Facebook account as well, is that the emotional load, apart from making sure all the things are done, it comes from a place of love Mm. that you, you're nurturing and caring for all these people so that all their needs are met. Mm. And if you drop one of those balls, it can feel like you're letting someone down. And then that's where my sense of not enoughness seems to come from. It's like, oh, I'm letting someone down. And God forbid, we don't have a dishwasher, right? This is, this. I hate this, but it's true of my life that if I don't clean up the dishes in the sink and my husband comes home to dirty dishes in the sink because I'm at work or whatever, yeah. that I'm... I'm not good enough as a, a parent, as a wife. As a, it's not even something I articulate in my head. It's just this always this anxiety that I need to make sure that all the dishes are done or I just haven't upheld my part of the contract. But going back to my feminist box, I think I'm pretty damn sure my husband doesn't feel that way. I was just about to say, I'm pretty sure he hasn't li- written you a list of rules. <laughs> no, and he if hasn't. He has, we need to have an episode about that because that's concerning. <laughs> that is very concerning. <laughs> I'm sure, look, I'm sure he gets annoyed if I don't, clean up the the dishes, but it's not because what I mean to say is that if he left the dishes in the the sink, I don't think it would cause cause him any anxiety. No. And so I feel like there's there's this legacy of expectation on women that's hundreds and hundreds of years old, and we're not even aware of it, that feeds into this idea of not enoughness. And that's that's so important that we're not aware of it because part of the unlearning of this is that you need to bring some awareness of it in order to be able to consciously then respond differently to that drive. So, oh my goodness, I for you it's dishes. I mm. was thinking that listeners will probably be listening to this and have their own marker of yes. what it is that makes them feel not enough. Perhaps it's when the floors aren't vacuumed. I have three dogs at home, 100 kilos of dogs <laughs> in my house, right? <laughs> I know it's concerning, but they're my babies. And so there's dog hair. 
And I often think, oh, my goodness, if someone visited, because we have a level of dog hair that's acceptable um, (laughs) for our house, because obviously you don't really notice it, but it wouldn't be acceptable for me if we had people coming over. Mm. And again, this is something, who says that? It's not my wife. My wife's not saying, we need to clean up the house manically if someone's going to enter our house. I, that's something I feel. And no one has ever actually said that to me. So it's something that we're holding over generations. To be able to unlearn that means conscious awareness, but it also means looking at what are we going to replace this with? What are we allowing ourselves to be now to then tie to our value? How do we get to the point as women, as mothers, that we can be enough simply because we are, simply because we exist, not because we do something to prove our value on top of that. God, that sounds such a relief to own that. Yeah. (sighs) But the thing is, it will take maybe seconds before you tense up again and tighten and think, but the dishes, back, the dishes. <laughs> the dog hair. <laughs> yeah. There's so much You know, I was interviewing uh, Kerry Sackville, the writer. She's very funny. And she um, wrote a book called um, The Life-Changing Power of a Little Bit of Mess. And it, it was a very funny book, but it did have um, a serious undertone in some respects. She said, and it really stuck with me, she said, when you apologize for the state of your house when someone comes over, why do you do that? Yeah. It's the same thing as about cleaning up the dog hair, right? Yeah. She said, your guest is never going to care if, you know, there's a spot of something on the floor or whatever. They're not going to judge you for that. They're there because they love you and they want to see you and all of those things. Yep. And I just thought, oh my God, it's like a light bulb moment. I always do that. When people come over. What are you making them feel when you go to their place? If you apologised when they walk into your house, you've then set a standard between the two of you that apparently the expectation should be that your house is perfect before someone enters into it. You're unintentionally, of course, placing that burden onto their shoulders. Yeah. Great. I'm never going to clean the bathroom again. (laughs) (laughs) I I know it's Permission granted. We've talked about where this might come from. Let's move forward to this idea of radical self-acceptance. You just mentioned, you know, what if we could just be enough for who we are rather than what we do? And it was like this, that statement is just like a huge exhale. It's it's a beautiful feeling. How would you define radical self-acceptance? Radical self-acceptance is the state of accepting yourself exactly as you are. It's the state of allowing yourself to exist with all your imperfections, with the parts of you that you're still forgiving, you're still healing, the parts of you that you're improving as well, the parts of you that you find less palatable than others, and yet you allow the totality of those parts to coexist together to make up everything that makes you the brilliant human that you are. Okay. So... This is a really obvious question, but say we get to that and we apply that in situations of dog hair, dishes, that list, that loop in the head of the things that we don't do. How does radical self-acceptance change those situations? It doesn't change the dog hair. (laughs) 
damn. Speaking from experience, <laughs> um, it won't change the it won't do the dishes for you. <laughs> what it changes is your relationship with the dishes, your relationship with the dog hair. And therefore, it changes your relationship with everyone in your life around those things as well. So you said before that you worry that you're not a good enough wife if the dishes aren't done, that there's some kind of unspoken standard in the back of your head that says the dishes must be done in order for me to be kind of playing my part. This is part of my contract, you know. Yes. Till death do us part, dishes. Um, (laughs) What happens with the relationship is not necessarily between you and your husband, but between you and you. When we work on our relationship with ourselves, when we soften into ourselves as being imperfect but still amazing human beings, we soften into everyone else too. We become easier to be around. We become less fixated on what must happen on the list of shoulds because we could transfer that list of not good enough into actually a list of shoulds for you. Mm. That's essentially your recipe for how you become perfect. Yeah. And when we come from a place of radical self-acceptance in our relationship with ourselves, what happens is we develop a cushioning between us and the rest of the world that means that we're no longer as abrasive when we enter the world with all these kind of expectations and standards for not just ourselves but for other people. And then when other people enter our field as well, they notice that softening. And they, what that connection does is it helps them to accept themselves as well. And it seems to me that if you do that, it allows things to happen that might not happen if you are, as you say, kind of with all those lists of expectations. Like I'm thinking if I'm always thinking I need to clean the dishes and what I really want to do is sit on the lounge with my kids and watch a Marvel movie or whatever that might be, yep. everyone would be happier if I sat on the lounge and didn't clean the dishes. They would be amazed. Yes. I know, I know. It's my lifelong ambition. Popcorn, and it would just be brilliant. (laughs) Yes. But that's what happens is you get to start doing the things that truly fit your values in that moment because 80-year-old Chev is not going to go, oh, God, I really, I'm so glad that I did the dishes that day (laughs) and I didn't watch the movie. Like there's never a time in your world that that's going to happen. Yeah. That when you look back, that's going to be where you want to have spent your energy. But what happens is... As we start to practice this way of being, this accepting way of being, it starts to open up the fact that we can not just do whatever we want. And I need to talk to my fellow type A personalities who might be listening who just go, (laughs) no, no, I need to still get some things done. I relate to that. And I also relate to there are parts of myself, myself that I'm constantly improving and involving. That's absolutely okay. But Radical self-acceptance also says that the parts of yourself that you're improving, you're also completely accepting right now. You're not making them wrong right now because you're improving. So as you accept, you do become more flexible and you're able to follow your values more closely, like watch the Marvel movie. You're not as tense about having to get the list done before you do the thing that you know, the real you, the part of you that is authentic and unencumbered by those expectations would really love to do. I love that. Now, um, I did this to you last time we spoke and I'm going to do it to you again. (laughs) You left us with um, a bit of a mantra we last um, spoke about confidence. And I'm wondering if you have anything similar to someone who wants to start this process of self-acceptance today. Yep. So the thing that I want you to think about is in pop psychology, people love to call it self-love. 
I don't love that. That's a lot of loves in that <laughs> sentence. Um, I don't love self-love because there's a huge gap in my experience, especially my clinical experience, from taking someone who is perhaps even depressed or severely anxious and feels that they're very core, not good enough, and then just casually asking them or suggesting to them to love themselves. Like, <laughs> calm down. Can we please <laughs> just be a little bit more practical here? So instead, it's not so much a mantra, but what I would encourage people to do when you're talking, we're talking about your relationship with yourself, which is very abstract. So let's make it more practical. The rhetoric that's happening in your head, the chasher that's happening in your head, I want you to just think about the tone that you're using. If you were to be a friend to yourself, you don't have to love yourself. We're not going that far. But if you're just going to treat yourself as a friend, what tone would you use? And what words would you use? Because most often that list would not have been made in the tone that I'm talking about right, right now. You wouldn't talk to me the way you talk to yourself while you're making that list. Depends how much dog hair there is. <laughs> totally understand that. Totally. And there's a lot. Okay. But I'm good with it. You know, <laughs> rescuing two Irish setters was worth it. Um, so one of the things that I want listeners to really think about, though, is this doesn't have to be hard. You don't need to go and meditate in a cave for three years and come out enlightened in order to be able to do this. You simply just need to consciously think, hold on a second, how am I speaking to myself right now? And would I say that to a friend? And if the answer is no, just gently rejig that chatter. Beck, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Chef. That's Dr. Rebecca Ray. Her book is called Small Habits for a Big Life, and I'll put links to where you can get a copy in the notes of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love. If you did, please rate, review, or favourite. That way, you'll get all the new episodes, plus we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, email me at feedplaylove at listener.com. Bye for now.